Hello and thank you for joining Haaretz Weekly. I am Amir Tibon. On today's episode, we'll discuss a fascinating, thought-provoking, some would say provocative article published recently in one of the most important journals in the world, Foreign Affairs, outlining the one-state reality in Israel-Palestine and calling on decision-makers, whether it's in Washington, D.C., in Israel, Europe, the Arab world, and also the Palestinian Authority, to get ready to a new era in which we have moved along from the possibility of a two-state solution. The, uh, two of the authors, Professor Shibli Telhami of the University of Maryland and the Brookings Institution, and Mark Lynch of George Washington University, will join us coming up in one minute. Shalom. This is Ofer Gutman, the CEO of Masai Israel Journey. I want to invite you to join us on April 24th at 7.50 p.m. Israel time for the annual Masa Memorial Day ceremony. Through their stories, we will honor the lives of the fallen Israeli soldiers and victims of terror from around the Jewish world. Their stories remind us that as Jewish people, we are forever connected. Join us live on Aretz website. Shibli Telhami, Mark Lynch, thank you both very much for joining the Haaretz Weekly Podcast. Pleasure. Great to be here. I want to first of all ask you about the timing of this article, because discussions of the two-state solution, the one-state solution, the reality on the ground have been going on for a long time. Why now? The interesting thing is uh, the timing was, in a way, accidental. Uh, it so happened to be such a good timing. The reason why I say that is that um, we have been working on this project for almost four years. Uh, we just published a book that happened to come out now, a university press book, Cornell University Press. And as you know, those take forever to do. Uh, so this book... Um, project, we started uh, first a, a workshop at uh, George Washington University, followed up by a workshop at the University of Maryland. The four of us, in, in addition to, to Mark and, and me, uh, uh, Professor Michael Barnett and Professor Nathan Brown uh, from George Washington University, and we invited more than a dozen scholars, including Israeli and Palestinian scholars, uh, to talk about what is Israel-Palestine. In fact, we didn't start initially calling it a one-state reality. We wanted, as political scientists, most of us were political scientists, to grapple with what it is because we were dissatisfied with with the discourse that uh, wait until the two-state solution when, in fact, you know, you've had an occupation that have lasted more than half a century and there was no end in sight and it was getting less and less likely every day. So we needed to capture what was taking place. And so it happened, we assembled these scholars, we put together, we solicited articles to, to really cover a range of issues related to the reality on the ground. Uh, and then in the process, we, we we had decided, we the four editors decided that it really is a one-state reality, which is what we ended up calling the book, the one-state reality, uh, what is Israel-Palestine. Uh, and that was obviously uh, years ago, anyway, because the, the the book has been in 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 the process. So it just was published, and because it was published, we wanted to put a an article out there. And we the Foreign Affairs ran that article, which is related to the publication of the book. It so happened, obviously, that this now is a timely, even more timely than it was when we first started. So what you're telling me is that it was born even before the rise of the current government in Israel which I think is the most opposed to a two-state solution that we've ever had here in Israel. And yet, 
the thesis itself was not born with this government. Um, maybe this government just came to strengthen it. And, and Mark, I want to hear your take on that. Yeah, that's exactly right. And um, I think that uh, this current Israeli government is clearly the reason why I think that these ideas are getting the kind of um, you know uptake that they're getting now, that uh, it's been a much more receptive audience because of the current Israeli government. Um, but I don't think that that's the driver of it. I think that what really affected us was just watching over the course of decades the entrenchment and consolidation of the systems of control and governance uh, across the West Bank and Gaza and Jerusalem, uh, which seemed just increasingly permanent and inexorable. And I think that along the, the pathway, as we were working on this, you had that series of reports coming out from groups like B'Tselem and Human Rights Watch and then later Amnesty International, all kind of converging on this set of ideas. And so in a sense, we felt like we were a bit ahead of the curve when we began. But uh, by the time we published, we felt we were smack dab in the middle of where uh, I think a lot of people were converging in terms of trying to understand what this what you know what this system actually is today. Can you talk a bit about the responses that you've gotten since this has come out? Um, because this is challenging, I think, for everyone to accept. Um, at least from the political point of view, the idea that we are officially in a one-state reality and the two-state reality is no longer a real option. And that's the opening paragraph of your article on foreign affairs. It's not convenient for anyone. Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, let's be clear. You know, uh, the title of the article is not our own title. Uh, we would not have chosen it ourselves. And we think it sort of like gave the impression that we're saying we're embracing a one-state solution and it's impossible to do two states, which is none no, of which I, is what we're saying. I understand that. But, you know, I do want to read for a second just the opening paragraph because I think it, sure. it, it, it's, it says a lot. And it, maybe for, I mean, I recommend obviously to our readers, to, to our listeners to go and, and read the article for themselves. But... The opening paragraph says that Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's return to power in Israel with a narrow, extreme right-wing coalition has shattered even the illusion of a two-state solution. Members of his new government have not been shy about stating their views that Israel should basically uh, control all the territories and be a greater Israel defined not just as a Jewish state, but one in which the law enshrines Jewish supremacy over all Palestinians who remain there. And as a result, it is no longer possible to avoid confronting a one-state reality. And I think this is not a comfortable confrontation for any of the powers that be. Agreed. Um, I think there's no question that's uncomfortable. I think, in fact, um, that lack of comfort has been the reason why many uh, parties, including in the U.S. and American foreign policy, have not wanted to confront it uh, because it does pose choices uh, that are very uncomfortable about the reality that now exists. So yes, I think it is uncomfortable. I think uh, not that we are offering a particular solution. What we're offering, uh, obviously, in addition to describing the reality as is, we, we basically say that whatever you, you do, however you do, whatever policy you pursue, uh, you got to start with this uncomfortable reality. You got to deal with it. So to the extent that we offer ideas, uh, they're only about ideas that this is not an acceptable reality. This is not a happy conclusion. Remember, uh, all four of us are uh, come from supporting a two-state solution. And if one is offered tomorrow, we would grab it. So this isn't coming as a happy ending. But the, the reality as it now exists is not only morally abhorrent, but also strategically unstable. And we start with that. 
whatever it is that you want to do in the future, whether you're an Israeli or Palestinian or an American foreign policy or anyone else, you've got to start with this reality. Can you talk a bit about the responses both from the United States? I'm talking in the foreign policy circles. I don't know if, if you got any responses from the Biden administration or people in Congress. Uh, and also, I'm very interested in the Arab world. What was the reception of this uh, argument? Well, I can talk a little bit about, you know, the general response um, on social media and over private communications has been, on the one hand, you know, very positive in terms of a lot of people, I think, um, either agreeing with or at least being deeply engaged with the underlying argument. But then, as you said, Amir, a lot of people being quite uncomfortable with the normative or policy implications of that. And, and I would just um, highlight a couple of the major responses that I think are interesting and worth thinking about. And one of them is that's been raised by a number of people on all ends of the spectrum has been that uh, the one state solution is impossible because nobody wants it on either side, right? The Palestinians don't really want it. The Israelis don't really want it. And therefore, it's impossible. And I think this is an interesting response because I think it's correct, but it's also in a way irrelevant to the argument we're making, which is not about people's preferences, but about the realities on the ground. In other words, I don't think that we're, because it's very important that we're not talking about a one state solution. I don't think this is a solution, but we're talking about a reality. Um, and that is a reality which is based on governance and power. Um, and that's really very different from the idea of trying to find a solution that matches the um, you know, the preferences of, of the parties on either side. So I think that's what been one major response. And I think um, it's a thoughtful one, one that we've really thought a lot about. Um, and then a second response has been on uh, the, the kind of uncomfortable discussion we have of, of, of apartheid, where on the one hand, you have the quite predictable responses of people complaining about it. Um, and saying it doesn't apply. And on the other side, you have people saying it's obviously apartheid and you and you soft pedal it. Um, and I'll take I take responsibility for the line in there, which basically says it may not technically be apartheid, but it rhymes. And and the reason for that is that I don't think it really matters what you call it. To us, it's extremely clear what kind of system of you know of, of oppressive domination exists in which uh, non-Jewish citizens are fundamentally and perpetually uh, unequal. What would be the policy implications of accepting this? for the Biden administration to start with. Obviously, there's other, you know, there are other actors, but I think most of the decision makers who may end up reading this article are in the U.S. government. Yeah, yes, and of course, uh, also, we're all for Americans and we're actually addressing our own government. Obviously, Israelis and Palestinians are going to bear the brunt of it in terms of responsibility, where they want to go from there. But American, what, one of the most important points that we make is that the United States is uniquely enabling this reality, has uniquely uh, entrenched uh, the one-state reality as it now exists. And that's not a small thing, because I think that if you agree with the, the idea, first, that it's a one state, when you reach the conclusion that it's a one state, it's uh, hard to not reach a conclusion that it's at least apartheid-like. And then to say the U.S. is partly responsible for this, to a great extent responsible for this. But in fact, the U.S. has been, because in fact, uh, occupation has been enabled by American foreign policy. And now the U.S. is doing practically nothing except sustaining a status quo. And the use of the term uh, wait until the two-state solution has become a smokescreen to cover up this reality. So I think from our point of view, 
the first thing to do is stop enabling it. Stop using a smokescreen. Start being honest about what it is. Do not accept an apartheid-like reality. Do not accept the permanence of structural discrimination but, on a scale that we witness. But one argument in response can be the United States does not accept this reality. It wants to solve it by creating a two-state solution. But it, in fact, it hasn't done that. In fact, all that you hear is using the two-state solution as a smokescreen. American policy has not been able to do that. And when, in fact, uh, there, there could have been things that have stopped, for example, settlement construction, which is obviously one obstacle that has been built over time, the U.S. has shielded Israel over and over again in the United Nations uh, against the consequences of violation of international law. And in fact, the, the very use of the term two-state solution has overtaken uh, the, the notion that there are violations of international law. Instead of saying settlements violate international law, therefore they're unacceptable, we say they don't help the two-state solution. Well, you know, they were wrong before there was a possibility of two-state solution. Uh, that's not the issue. Um, also, I think what we need to be very clear about, and I don't think that's clear to um, a lot of people, particularly who have not read it very carefully, is that we make a differentiation between uh, state and sovereignty. Uh, so what we're saying is not that the international community should accept Israeli sovereignty over that one state or change its position on violations of international law as they are pertaining to an occupation that has lasted since 1967. What we're saying is that Israel in practice is a state in essentially enforcing its control over the territories and entrenching the institutions inside to maintain it over time. And it's moving increasingly in that direction. And it should, therefore, that pertains to how we describe it and how we describe the relationship between Jews and non-Jews in that state. But it does not change the fact, for example, that settlements remain illegal under international law uh, and that no one necessarily is going to recognize Israeli sovereignty over that one state. There's a difference between those two. And we got to make that clear, particularly when we're making recommendations about policy. So what are the recommendations that come with this acceptance of the one-state reality, as you call it? What would be required of the different actors involved in trying to solve this conflict or end this reality? Well, I don't think this conflict is going to be solved. Um, I think that uh, this, the reality that we're describing is one which is quite resistant to efforts to solve. Um, and I, I just want to pick up a little bit on your question from before, Amir, and uh, expand on what, uh, what Shibley said which is that you know there really hasn't been anybody who's actually been trying for two-state solution for quite a long time. Um, Except I would say for that saying it. Yeah, exactly. So in the 1990s, there were real efforts. The Oslo process, that it was a real potential, and you could see it crystallizing in various ways, but that failed. And, you know, we're over 20 years now where there's been no serious um, uh, negotiations, no serious U.S. pressure. There's the occasional rhetoric and talk. But mostly what I see from the administration, the Biden administration right now is at most uh, the management of the problem, trying to stop it from exploding, you know, so it doesn't become a distraction. You can tell that, you know, from the kinds of policies that they're that they that they're, they're adopting, that they have no illusions that there's actually going to be any possibility of moving towards a two state solution. 
They just want to manage the conflict in such a way that it doesn't become politically or strategically inconvenient. Uh, and that is, I guess, what Shibley is saying is describing when he says it's a smokescreen and that, you know, by by pretending that we're managing it, it just basically gives top cover for the ongoing consolidation of Israeli domination of this one state reality. Um, and in terms of like the policy implications, you know, the, the, they're relatively weak, I, I would say, in the sense that um, I at least I can't speak for my other co-authors, but I don't think that there is any solution on offer at the moment, given the constellation of political forces in Israel, the Palestinians, the Arab world or in the United States. And so the the parts of the policy recommendations that um, that I find most powerful really are the move towards kind of this long term struggle revolving around uh, human rights, equality, uh, and um, and citizenship. Uh, you know this reframing that you've seen adopted by a number of Palestinian intellectuals. Uh, around basically trying to frame this as a fundamental civil rights and human rights issue and uh, work from there rather than working towards trying to create this uh, this two-state solution, which just isn't going to happen. And, you know, we explicitly say uh, in the book uh, that we shouldn't at the moment uh, seek a solution because that's not going to happen in any foreseeable future, but we shouldn't be part of the problem and continue to be part of the problem. So the, all of our recommendation, for example, stop shielding Israel at the UN when in fact there are legitimate uh, uh, reasons for the UN uh, to pursue uh, uh, costs for violations uh, of international law, uh, the U.S. must stop that because that has, in essence, uh, enabled, in fact, the, the Israeli right, uh, because they don't take consequences very seriously. Uh, and if you look at even American policy, which has been essentially to work with any Israeli government, no matter what it does on the ground, to uh, enhance the Israeli position regionally. For example, you know, advancing uh, accords between uh, Israel and the Arab states without uh, tying it to anything to do with the abhorrent reality uh, in the in the West Bank and Gaza, uh, that that that's something that you know that that the U.S. should not continue to do. So, mm -hmm. whether or not this leads to a solution, at least the U.S. would not be part of the problem. Speaking of being part of the problem, where does this put the Palestinian Authority? Because the Palestinian Authority exists because of the Oslo Accords. And the idea that it is a temporary step for the creation of a state. If we come and say there is now a one-state reality and two states is not a viable option, the continued existence of the Palestinian Authority then becomes also, you can argue, part of the problem. Well, I don't disagree with that. I think that, um, again, the idea of the Palestinian Authority as an embryonic state in the making is a relic of the 1990s. And I don't see that it has played that role for quite some time. Um, and I think it primarily today is little more than a security contractor for the Israeli government uh, enforcing the, uh, the, the one state reality as it actually exists. I don't know many Palestinians who view the Palestinian Authority as a legitimate uh, representative of their aspirations or even as being particularly useful. Um, and so, yeah, it's very it's difficult to see a place for the Palestinian Authority as currently constituted within the framework that we're describing as anything other than this, you know, basically security contractor. But the implications of that, some people will argue is actually more violence because if we uh, let go of the concept of a Palestinian authority, 
then we do lose one of the moderating forces that exist today and uh, help uh, escalate the levels of violence on the ground many times. And I think this is perhaps one reason why American decision makers and also decision makers in the Arab world would hesitate about uh, uh, confronting and accepting the reality as you guys call them to do. Amir, you're you're talking about uh, violence. Um, uh, obviously, violence with or without the authority is going to expand, particularly from the far right. Um, and uh, if you're Palestinian, violence has been extremely uh, present uh, every single day. Not just in terms of the actual shootings or or uh, visible violence, but you know the the reality of it is when you have a military occupation over 5 million people uh, who don't want you there that has lasted a lifetime, most of a century, uh, that's violent. I understand the argument, but I think Washington and Amman and I don't know, also perhaps some of the uh, Abraham Accords countries, you know, uh, Egypt, in all of these uh, places, there are powerful people who see a benefit of having the Palestinian Authority because it at least helps diffuse some of the violence or confront some of the violence just by its own existence and also by fighting against Hamas presence in the West Bank and stopping terror cells and things like that. And I'm asking you, what would you would be your reply to a decision maker, again, whether it's in Washington or in Cairo, who would tell you, well, I understand the argument, but I don't want to give up on the Palestinian Authority and the facade of a two-state solution. No, absolutely. And, and that's that is basically the argument for managing the conflict that I was describing before, that this is not a great solution, but it's better than the alternative. So we might as well keep doing it since there's nothing better on the horizon. But I would say that, as Shibley was saying, that the Palestinian Authority as a security provider, security contractor, is uh, has diminishing value and diminishing returns as it you know progressively loses legitimacy and relevance. Um, it loses utility along those grounds. Um, I actually think that there could be a role for the Palestinian Authority in a different formulation if it were allowed to regenerate and renew itself um, with actual elections and something which was actually uh, more accountable to and responsive to Palestinian demands rather than only the external demands of conflict management. But I see very little prospect of that on the horizon, certainly as long as the current leadership is in place. Um, but in terms of concrete things that might be done within the current framework, some kind of renewal of Palestinian Authority seems more likely that to be useful than simply perpetuating it in its current form. You know, I think it's not the authority per se. Remember that um, there is a Palestine national movement. The PLO is the one that's considered to be representing the Palestinian people. That's what the deal was between Israel and the PLO, not the Palestinian Authority. The Palestinian Authority was created to manage the affair, and hopefully, at the time, it was hoped that it would lead to uh, to a state. So um, we're not calling for dissolution of anything. It might happen on its own. Uh, so these structures exist, and they might be useful in various ways. We're not going to solve the problem. Ultimately, there has to be a Palestinian address. Uh, uh, now, the, that address is the PLO, and obviously uh, Mahmoud Abbas wears those hats. Um, uh, it, there has to be some address because obviously there are issues that come out of uh, not just the, uh, the, the Palestinian grievances vis-a-vis uh, -vis Israel directly, uh, but also in terms of um, international law as it now exists. And as we say, we're not calling for transformation in the legal structures 
um, uh, in terms of um, occupation, violation of sovereignty, uh, uh, and uh, those kind of principles. Uh, so there has to be a Palestinian address. So obviously it's unavoidable whether or not this will be sufficient for the Palestinians. That's something they're going to have to decide for themselves. Uh, friends, the last question I want both of you to try to address uh, briefly, and really this has been a fascinating conversation with uh, a lot of uh, food for thought. Um, I-, I want to ask you basically if the recognition that you demand of this reality, uh, is this something... that you think also reflects new dynamics in the Democratic Party in the United States and the political debate of Israel? Um, and, and if so, where is that heading? Are we going to see more people in the Democratic Party come and say that they see this one-state reality on the ground that you are describing? No, I mean, you know, um, there's no question that there's been some transformation Uh, in the Democratic Party, not so much in terms of whether it's a one-state reality or not. Uh, as you know, I do public opinion polls in the U.S. I've been doing it for decades. And there has been a transformation in the Democratic Party, including not just uh, sort of the elites, but especially public opinion, uh, where the latest poll by Gallup, for example, showed that for the first time in their years of polling, more people sympathize with the Palestinians and sympathize with Israel. That's quite remarkable. We've been finding something along these lines uh, that's among Democrats I'm talking about. And we've been finding the same thing uh, in our polling. And in large part, because more and more uh, within the Democratic Party, particularly young Democrats, are looking at uh, the Israeli-Palestinian issue, not through the prism of strategic interests, or even biblical prophecy. We find that even with young evangelicals, but increasingly the prism of social justice. Uh, so in that sense, yes, I think you're going to find more people uh, at least calling for equality, calling out the injustices. Uh, I think that is a trend. Yeah, and I, I would only add that, yes, you, do, you are seeing this within uh, certain parts of the Democratic Party, and um, you're seeing some younger leaders emerge. I think there's a, there's a very much a generational dimension to this. And um, I think that uh, kind of the rising generation, they just they don't have the kind of investment in the in the Oslo framework that uh, I think shapes the understandings of a lot of the uh, the older generation and kind of the experienced uh, your policy people uh, in the Biden administration um, that, you know, kind of anchors them within that two state possibility. Um, so, yeah, and I think that so I think there's a generational dimension and I think it's likely to accelerate. I think, again, the, as we began this conversation, uh, the trends within the Israeli government uh, and the way it's been dealing with the West Bank and 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 at home, I think, has certainly accelerated that as more and more people look at this and they see these realities unfolding. And there's also, I think, been just really, really creative and effective activism among a number of young Palestinian activists and intellectuals that have been pushing these frameworks and rethinking things. So I think that we've had intellectual and policy stagnation for decades, and I see that melting now. And I think the response to our article, I think, has really showed that a lot of people quietly agree with the underlying premise, even if they're not yet ready to let go of you know, the old policy implications and confront the implications of this one state reality. But I think we're getting there. Uh, whether, whether we want to or not uh, is kind of not the point. I think more and more people are seeing it this way. And I think policy is going to have to follow. Well, I can only share with you that here in Israel, there has been a debate among people in foreign policy circles and national security circles, just of the fact that this was published and also that it's becoming more and more of a debate in the United States. And it's uh, definitely also 
something to consider for decision makers here in Israel. Uh, Professor Zdribli Talhami and Mark Lynch, thank you so much for joining the podcast to discuss this. And again, listeners who have not read the article in Foreign Affairs, I strongly recommend. Very interesting read. Thank you. Thank you for hosting us. Thank you so much. And that's it for today's episode. Thank you very much to you listeners and to Nahara Malkin and Dan Brumer, our editing and production team. We'll be back again next week. And until then, Shalom from Tel Aviv.